Well, it's so good to see each one of you uh, here this morning and, uh, and to have you worshiping with us. As we come to this section of scripture, this is a passage that uh, is a little different than the text we've been looking at so far. Um, all, all, most of the texts we've been looking at have been uh, stories about people. And the text that we have looking at this morning, is, it kind of moves into a different type of genre. And the idea of sacrifice... Um, and particularly of animal sacrifice, for those of us living in the 21st century in a, in a Western culture, is distant um, and difficult to grasp at best, and, and probably uh, at worst even offensive and objectionable. And, and so for most of us sitting here this morning, if we were to witness someone sacrificing an animal, if your next door neighbor was doing this in their backyard, it would probably be something that you would call the police about uh, rather than uh, start worshiping about. And yet, when we look at people around the world today, and certainly throughout history, sacrifice uh, to God or the gods or the spirits or ancestors is a regular part of their lives. And as we turn to the pages of scripture in the book of Leviticus, we find that sacrifice is central to the way that God's newly liberated people, this people that he's brought out of Egypt, it's central to the way that he prescribes for them to relate to him, to the God of the Bible, to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who brought them up out of Egypt. So why is this? When we come to the the book of Leviticus, we have to ask this question, why is this? Why sacrifice? And Leviticus is certainly not the first place in the Bible where we see sacrifice introduced. Um, Even as early as as with Cain and Abel, the the sons of Adam and Eve, you see the concept of sacrifice emerging in the story of the scripture. And then later, a little bit further down in the story, you see Noah, after Noah and his family who have been living on an ark to escape a flood, after they come out of the ark, out of this boat, they offer sacrifice to God. But it's not until we get to Leviticus that this idea of sacrifice is really brought fully into view. And it's here where we find the most detailed instructions about how Israel is to worship God. And central to this is sacrifice. So if I could summarize the whole book, and this is the only message we'll have on the book of Leviticus in in our Open Here series. But if I could summarize the book of Leviticus for you in, in one sentence, it would be this. That we must approach God in God's way. As you look at the book of Leviticus, it's all about the fact that we must approach God in God's way. We don't come to God and set the terms. Rather, he tells us how we are to come and worship him, to approach him, to have a relationship with him. I mean, in a a similar way, you think about this, even if if you were to have a visit with or have a meeting with uh, the president of the United States, you have to do it on his terms, right? Because of his position, his office. You can't just say, I want to meet you for coffee here. No, if you're going to have a meeting with him, he sets the time and the place. And and if you're not willing to go through the steps of of passing through the metal detector or or of having the secret service present or, or maybe even having a background check done, that meeting isn't going to happen. You see, from the moment that slavery to sin and death entered the world, God has been at work setting things right again. And Leviticus is a book that graciously gives God's people instruction for how they can know him and relate to him. A theologian, Graham Cole, uh, observes that when God acts to set things right, there is both liberation and judgment. That when God acts to set things right, there's both liberation and judgment. And judgment. And this morning, as we look at Leviticus 16, as we look at the text that, that Amy read for us, 
what we're going to see is that the key to God being the one who sets things right through liberation and judgment is sacrifice. And so as we look at this text this morning, we're going to see the how, or rather the, the why of sacrifice, the how of sacrifice, and then the end of sacrifice. So, so the why of sacrifice, the how of sacrifice, and then the end of sacrifice. So, so last week, we left the Israelites grumbling in the wilderness, and, and now as we pick up their story, our story, in the book of Leviticus, God's people have received the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai, um, they've been given the law, and they've been given instructions on how to build the tabernacle. So if you are reading along, you get to the bo- end of the book of Exodus, the book of Exodus ends with all these instructions to build this thing called the tabernacle. Now, the tabernacle was a tent. It was a movable temple, basically, that God, allowed God to dwell with his people, to be in their midst. And this theme of God dwelling with his people is central to the whole story of the Bible. So really, as you follow the storyline of the Bible from the beginning in Genesis all the way to the end, the last book of Revelation, this theme of God dwelling with his people is central. So really, Genesis 1 and 2, in the Garden of Eden, Garden of Eden is the first temple. It's the place where God walks with his people, where his presence dwells with them. And now that they've been out of Egypt, they've been, they've been rescued out of Egypt, God for the first time, has this unique place in the tabernacle where he comes and he lives with his people in their presence. And so the book of Leviticus is a continuation of that second part of Exodus, and it describes, as the ESV Study Bible puts it, how God is able to deal with sin and impurity so that he can dwell in the people's midst. And central to this way of dealing with sin and impurity is the concept of, of sacrifice. And in the passage we're looking at this morning, Leviticus 16, we're introduced to kind of the greatest moment of sacrifice in Israel's rhythm of worship. It's the day uh, Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. But before we look specifically at this text this morning, I want to spend some time working on this question of why sacrifice And I actually want to spend a pretty good chunk of time on this before we get to Leviticus. I just want to set our expectations. We're going to spend a good chunk of time looking at this question of why sacrifice. Because for us, the concept of sacrifice is so distant. We don't, this isn't something we do. So we're going to look at this question of why sacrifice before we get into the text of Leviticus 16. So as I alluded to earlier, sacrifice was common in the ancient Near Eastern world, and, and it's really common in our world today. If you were to go around the world, many cultures in the majority world still practice some form of sacrifice today. In fact, it's almost a universal practice in, in cultures both ancient as well as many cultures around the world today. And so what we need to do, first of all, before we reject the idea of sacrifice out of hand, we need to be willing to say, if we're going to do that, We need to be willing to say that we think that our culture is superior to the cultures of other times and places. And and are we willing to do that? Are we willing to say that our 21st century Western culture is superior to indigenous cultures in other parts of the world today or of to cultures and people in the past? And, and, And if we aren't prepared to say just out of hand that we are in fact so much better than these other cultures then we need to at least make an effort to understand why so many people around the world have practiced sacrifice and why it's still a part of many people's lives today. 
You see, in the ancient Near East, there were many, and this kind of this is the, the culture surrounding Israel at the time, there were many reasons that people offered sacrifices. But the two primary reasons that people in kind of the Old Testament times, not Israel, but the nations around them offered sacrifices, the first was divination to kind of tell the future. To, to, if you sacrificed an animal and you kind of looked at its, its liver or something, you could tell something, the gods would speak to you through that. If it was a certain color or a certain shape, kind of like reading the tea leaves, you would know that you're supposed to go to battle or you weren't supposed to go to battle. So divination was one of the main reasons. The other was feeding the deity. So you would feed the god or the gods by presenting this food, this offering to them. And then that basically, the point of feeding the deity was to get him on your, on your side. So him or her, the, the god or goddess, if you gave them food, they, they would be on your side. They would do what you wanted them to do. Or at least they wouldn't do bad things to you. So it was either about kind of manipulating um, the deity, manipulating the God. So fundamental to sacrifice in the ancient Near Eastern world is manipulation of the God. You would give it food and then it was kind of this transactional thing. You give it what it wants and then maybe it will do for you what you want. It will give you good crops or victory in battle, that kind of thing. And so actually the idea was you would put that, that offering, that meat or vegetable or whatever it was, and, and the God would kind of magically, through its presence, kind of take out the nutrients and it would give back minerals to you. I mean, this is how they thought about sacrifice, and then you would eat it and, and get benefit from that. But in both these cases, cases of divination and, and feeding the deity, the purpose of the sacrifice was to manipulate the God, to get him to do what you wanted him to do. And, and in the ancient Near East, the purpose of sacrifice was always that. Um, it, it, if you impressed the deity, made it happy, then it would make you have a good life and, and at least not judge you or, or hurt you. Um, and, and I think it's easy for us, again, sitting here in 21st century Western culture to think, man, how silly is that? Oh, if I, if I give a good food you know, meal to the God, then it's going to be nice to me or, or I'm going to appease it somehow through that. But you know, so many of us who have grown up in the church at least, who have a religious background. Man, so many of us, if you don't have a church background, you may not be as inclined toward this, but if, if you've grown up in the church, so many of us have an inclination to relate to God in just the same kind of way. That, that we say, if, if I live a good enough life, um, if, if I do the things that God wants me to do, then, then he sort of owes me blessing, right? If, if I'm obeying him, then, then I'm supposed to have a good, smooth, easy life. We operate on that unspoken assumption so often that if I obey, that if I keep all the rules, then God will bless me and give me a good life. That, that that's kind of the deal we have worked out. But the reality is we can't make God do anything. I mean, I can't make God do, I can't do enough good to make God save me. Um, and, and I also can't do enough evil to make him kill me. He can act graciously when he chooses and God obligates himself to certain things, but he will not be manipulated by us. This is fundamentally a difference between the Israelites and the rest of the world. Their sacrifices were never about manipulating God. So why sacrifice? Why then does God prescribe sacrifice in the Bible? And, and I want to look at kind of three basic reasons. First, because God is holy and Israel isn't, and by extension, we aren't either. So what does it mean that God is holy? I think when we hear that language of holiness, at least for me, and I, and I found myself watching some clips of this yesterday, when I hear the word holiness, I often think of the church lady, you know, Dana Carvey, this kind of uptight, you know, church lady in the basement who is this kind of picture of, of properness and, you know, those great sketches from Saturday Night Live back in the 90s. 
But what is holiness? What in the Bible says that God is holy? What idea should we have in our minds about that? In the scriptures, as you look at the, the Bible and how it speaks about God's holiness, there's two main ideas that come to the, the, the forefront. The first one is God's holiness means that he's separate, that he's other, that he's unique, that there's no one else like him. And so, in, in fact, in Exodus 15, just a, a few uh, chapters earlier in the book of Exodus than where we were last week, you see this, they, this is, they've just crossed the Red Sea, they're celebrating Exodus 15 is a, is a chapter of celebration and song after they've crossed the Red Sea, and it says this in, in verse 11, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? So part of God's holiness is that there is no one else like him. He's unique. But the second aspect of God's holiness is his absolute purity, his goodness, his wholeness, his beauty, his integrity. So for example, the the prophet Habakkuk can declare that you who are of pure eyes than to see evil cannot look at wrong. That God can't even, he's separate totally from anything evil or wrong. There's this purity, a beauty, wholeness to him. Now, now we cannot be like God in, in holiness in the sense of his uniqueness and his otherness. But over and over and over again throughout the Bible, particularly in the book of Leviticus, God expects his people to be like him in his goodness, in his purity, in his wholeness, in his integrity. So Abraham is called to be bla- walk the, for the Lord and be blameless. And over and over and over again in the book of Leviticus, you hear this refrain, be holy as I am holy, God says this to his people. Be holy, for I am holy. And, and Old Testament scholars point out that because of the divine human relationship with the Lord, as expressed in this kind of covenant relationship at, at Sinai, the Israelites were to become a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. They were to be holy as I am holy, as the Lord is holy. It's not merely a motto, but it's a level of commitment to them. However, we are not holy. In in fact, we are fundamentally, since the Garden of Eden and our parents and and Adam and Eve, we are holiness averse. We are sinful. And sin is the big category which Christians use to talk about what is wrong with with us, what's wrong with the world, what's wrong with our relationship with God. So sin is, when, when you hear Christians talk about sin, it's the big category. But the Bible talks about sin in a number of different categories. And we're not going to spend a lot of time looking at all those today. But I want to point out some number of the ways, the pictures that the Bible uses to talk about this big category of sin, what's wrong with the world. So sometimes the Bible talks about sin as being idolatry. So, and this is not necessarily just worshiping or, or bowing down before a statue Um, But idolatry, fundamentally, as you look at it again, throughout the whole storyline of the Bible, idolatry is taking a good thing and making it into an ultimate thing. It's taking a good thing and making it into an ultimate thing. And so, for example, you could take a good thing like sex. Sex is a gift that God has given us. It's It's a good gift. It's part of his plan for human flourishing. It's a good thing. If you make it into an ultimate thing, it will destroy you. If it becomes the ultimate thing, then you get trapped in relationships that you never wanted to be a part of. You can be manipulated by other people. You can be trapped in pornography. Sex, a good thing, when it becomes an ultimate thing, begins to destroy us. So, so sometimes the Bible talks about sin as idolatry. Taking a good thing, money, sex, power, influence, family, and making it into an ultimate thing. 
Other times, the Bible talks about sin as, as law-breaking, that God has given instructions for how life works best, proper boundaries for maximizing his glory and, and our flourishing. And when we violate those boundaries, when we violate that design, um, when we ignore that, when we disobey those principles, the Bible also speaks about that as sin, as, as this idea of sort of breaking law. But third, the Bible, and I think this is maybe most significant, the Bible also speaks about sin as a rebellion against a person, as a rejection of a person. It uses the language of, of rebellion or treason. And this is the idea behind the word in Leviticus 16 that's translated transgression. As we look through the text in a moment, you'll see a number of times this word transgression comes up. And it means kind of this high-handed treason, this rejection of God, this conscious decision to go a separate way, to reject God as ruler. Transgressions are acts which break relationship within the community and with God. It's the gravest word for sin in all of the Bible. You see, all sin is sin, but God takes certain things more seriously, both in natural consequences and in how he assesses them. Transgression, this idea of rebellion, is, is this picture of, and you've, I mean, I remember as a kid doing it. It's like, you know what's right. Your parents have given you the rule. You clearly know it. You understand it, and you look them right in the face, and you do the exact opposite. That's this idea of this high-handed treason. It's a rejection. It's not a, an ignorance. It's not a, I'm confused. It's, I know what I'm supposed to do. I'm going to look you right in the face, and I'm going to do the exact opposite. I'm going to say, forget you. I'm doing my own thing. And what's interesting, and this is the language that, you know, back in the story of Joseph that we looked at a number of weeks ago, this is what their sin against him, they're selling him into slavery, they're pretending that he had been killed, is described as transgression. And in the Old Testament sacrificial system, there's no atonement for transgression except for on the Day of Atonement. The regular sacrificial system didn't have any way of dealing with this except this one day of year. So in short, sacrifice is necessary because God is holy and we are not. But sacrifice is also necessary because God is a God of justice. Because God is good, he is just. And because he is just, he must judge sin. Uh, Stanley Grenz, a, a theologian, explains this. So he says, God is holy means that he is just and totally righteous in all that he does. And I love this. He says, God is always fair with all his creatures. God is always fair with all his creatures. Consequently, God seeks justice. And one day he will judge each human being according to his standard. God must be just. He can't ignore or overlook people's sin. And, and you see, as much as we may think that we want a God who doesn't hate sin, we really do. We really do because we don't want an unholy God. James Byron Smith writes, being soft on sin is not loving because sin destroys. I want a God who hates anything who hurts me. That really struck me, that I want a God who hates anything that hurts me. And fundamental to sin, whether it's in idolatry or rebellion, it destroys. And we don't want a God who is willing to tolerate something that will destroy us and his good world. Oftentimes when we hear God being wrathful, we think of this sort of pouring out, this explosion in anger. But rather, God's wrath is his settled opposition to the cancer that is destroying his image bearers and the world in which he has made. 
So sacrifice is necessary for God to be just. He has to be just if he's going to be good. He must set things aright. And third, sacrifice is necessary also because God is a God of mercy. He has provided a way for justice to be satisfied while still showing mercy to his creatures. But but how does that work? How does sacrifice work to do justice and show mercy? And this leads us to the next point of, of how, the how of sacrifice. So we kind of set that, that backdrop of this is why sacrifice is necessary. And when we look at Leviticus chapter 16, we see the how of sacrifice. And Leviticus uh, 16 opens in, in the first couple of verses with the mention of an incident from earlier in the book, in, in chapter 9, where two of Aaron's sons, and Aaron is kind of Moses' right-hand man. Moses is leading the people of Egypt. Aaron is right there with him. And Aaron and his sons were entrusted with caring for the tabernacle and serving in the tabernacle. And earlier in the book of Leviticus, two of Aaron's sons, they go into the temple or into this tabernacle space uh, in an improper way. Um, maybe, it seems like maybe they were drunk. We don't know exactly what's going on, but they're immediately struck dead. And so now in Leviticus chapter 16, in verses 3 through 5, God is coming to Moses and Aaron saying, this is the right way to approach me as I dwell in your midst, so that that doesn't happen again. And at the core of that is sacrifice. And in verses 3 through 5 in Leviticus 16, you see that the two central things there are these two goats that we read about earlier. And together they are the sin offering for the whole of the people of Israel. But before we look at the significance of what happens to each goat, it's important to remember that sacrifice in the book of Leviticus is not about salvation. It's about fellowship. It's about relationship. So God has already acted decisively to save his people, to rescue them out of Egypt. So these sacrifices aren't getting, again, this is not kind of getting God back on their side. He is already radically for them. He's brought them out of Egypt. He's rescued them before they ever offered any sacrifices to him. But these sacrifices provide a way for them to maintain a relationship with God. So these sacrifices aren't to get into a relationship with God, but rather to maintain a relationship with God that he might continue to dwell in and live in their midst. So when the Day of Atonement arrived, and if you notice in verse 6, Aaron offers a sin offering of a bull for himself, for his own sins, to prepare himself to enter God's presence on behalf of God's people. And then next we see in verse 6 that Aaron takes two goats and places them before the Lord. And then he casts lots. So it's kind of like casting a die or rolling a die. And one of these is selected, one of the goats is selected to be sacrificed as a sin offering. And the other one is selected to be a scapegoat or the, the escape goat. The ESV here the, and some other translations have a zazel instead of scapegoat. Um, but what the idea here is, is that they take, um, that's just a literal transliteration of the word that's there. And some people want to understand that as a proper name or a place. So that Azazel is, is like the name of a, of a deity or of a place. Um, the traditional explanation is that it's actually a compound word that means escape or scent, go away, and goat. I think that that's probably the better translation. If you look at the NIV, it has scapegoat or a scapegoat. But the idea, regardless of what's going on there, um, is that the sins are being placed on this goat and it's being sent away. That's the key thing to recognize there. But if you have a different translation, you might see scapegoat versus uh, Azazel there. Um, But central to that is that the sins are being taken away from the people and sent out into the wilderness. 
And in verses 11 through 14, Aaron brings the blood of the bull into the Holy of Holies, so into the very central part of the tabernacle where God's presence dwells. And he takes some of the blood of that bull into the Holy of Holies, and he sprinkles it on the mercy seat. And the mercy seat was the top part of this box called the Ark of the Covenant. And this Ark of the Covenant was this, this box that the people carried with them that symbolized God's presence with them. And the, the top of that was where kind of symbolically God's presence dwelt in the midst of his people. It was the very core of that. And so Aaron takes and he sprinkles some blood on to that top of that mercy seat, the top of that box of the Ark of the Covenant. And next we see in verses 15 through 19 that then he goes out and he kills the goat and then he repeats this process. So he's made atonement for himself and now he takes the goat, he kills that, he brings it in. And this is now on behalf of the whole nation that he takes blood and he sprinkles it on to the mercy seat to make atonement for them. And and, and don't miss that. This is so key. It's only one person who goes in for all of the people. All the rest of the Israelites are at home. They're being told to rest on this day. One person goes in on their behalf to make atonement for them. It's significant. Now in verses 20 and 22, we see Aaron, he goes out, he's offered a sacrifice in the Holy of Holies with a goat. Now he comes out and he places his hands on the head of this other goat and he's sent off into the wilderness. That placing of the hands, is, it's a transferring of guilt that all of this sin, this evil that Israel has been wrapped up in, idolatry, law-breaking, rebellion, all this is placed on to this goat. It's symbolically transferred and then it's sent off into the wilderness away, far, far away. So you get this idea of your sins being separated from the east to the west. The psalmist uses this language. It's being separated from you. It's being sent far away. Carries the sins of the people out into the wilderness. The two goats, the one that's sacrificed, the one that's sent away, they symbolize two halves, two aspects of the atonement. The first goat is sacrificed and its blood is sprinkled on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And this symbolizes the divine atonement, that God's holy justice is being satisfied, that something has been judged, that justice has been done in our place. And the second goat represents sort of the human side of atonement, that the sins of people are transferred to the goat and then it's escorted outside the camp to carry away the sins. So by means of this transfer, They're cleansed of defilement and sin. So in the one moment inside the ark that God's wrath, his justice is satisfied, in the other moment as this thing is being sent away, then we are cleansed. So our guilt has been appeased. We are being washed and cleansed. Atonement, and we've been using that word a lot, just simply means the restoration of relationship, reconciliation. That's what's at the heart of atonement. And at the heart of atonement and reconciliation in the Bible is the idea of substitution. The idea of substitution. Uh, John Stott, a great uh, English preacher, um, he just passed away a few years ago. But he wrote that reconciliation is only possible through substitutionary sin-bearing. There's actually another great quote from John Stott in your welcome folder in the conversation starter about substitution. I would encourage you to read it. It's one of of my favorites. It's a powerful piece in the conversation starter. But why is substitution at the heart of reconciliation and forgiveness? 
I mean, why can't God just forgive, right? I mean, why can't he just say, you know what? It's not a big deal. I'm gracious. I'm full of mercy. I, I don't need to have you sending, why all of this death? God, why all of this, these animals being killed? Why, why, why this? Why can't you just say, hey, it's okay. I forgive you. Well, because no one just forgives. You see, real forgiveness is always costly, I mean, even in our relationships with one another. For, you know, for example, uh, when I lived downtown uh, for a while, it was a snowy day, and, and I was in the parking lot, and I didn't want to clean out my car. This is why Rachel, I sometimes take shortcuts that aren't helpful, and I didn't want to wipe off the back <laughs> of the thing. I was like, I'll just let the defrost do it, and there was this tiny parking lot, and I, I smashed in, not smashed, but I, I crunched into this car behind me in the park. I didn't see it. And I first had the moment, you know, just transparently as a pastor, I was like, it's, you know, it's like 5.30 in the morning, and I was like, no one will know. I mean, I had this moment, right, you know, like, I could leave, and no one's going to know, and I was like, no, it's actually, like, breaking not only, like, God's law, but it's, like, breaking an actual law of our country. So, I, you know, I got out, I wrote the note down, I stuck it on the windshield, you know, here's my phone number, you know, my email address, I'm, I'm sorry I backed into your car. But in that instance, right, like, even if the owner of that car said, you know, Bill, I... I I forgive you, I'm, I'm not going to hold you to this, I'm not going to make you pay, I'm not going to turn to my insurance. Someone still pays, right? Either she pays by having her car fixed, her insurance fixes it, or she pays for it out of her pocket, or she just drives around with a broken car, in which case, you know, she suffers the loss of having a, a, a vehicle that's whole. So it, it, when her forgiving that, if, if she were to do it, which she didn't, by the way, I paid for it. Um, <laughs> she is absorbing the debt into herself. She's paying the cost, or in this case, I paid the cost. But right in our, in our relationships, like, no one just forgives. Someone either pay, you know, either the person who smashed the car pays, or the person whose car was smashed, they pay either by uh, fixing the car or suffering the loss of not having the car that is fully fixed. But now, so this is an objects, right? So we see that working that way. That, that no one just forgives. Someone's always paying. Someone's absorbing the debt. But, but some things just can't be paid back, right? I mean, if someone has robbed you of, of happiness or of your reputation, if you've been in a relationship and someone has hurt you deeply, if you've been through a divorce or through a nasty breakup with someone, there's just been deep pain. It's like, how can they, I mean, they can't write you a check for that. But again, there's only two options there. I mean, you can either make them pay by trying to make them suffer in the way that they've made you suffer, to make their life miserable, to hurt them in the way that they've hurt you. Or you can choose to forgive them. But then you absorb that debt into yourself. You release them of that obligation, but that feels like a kind of death. If you've ever gone through that, you've really let that go. If you've let go of your obligation to someone who's deeply hurt you, it feels like a kind of death that I'm no longer going to try to make them suffer. You say, I'm willing to absorb that into myself. Yes, I've been wronged, but I'm not going to hold them accountable anymore. It feels like a kind of death. You see, forgiveness is always a costly form of suffering. No one just forgives. And in the sacrificial system, the animal paid the price in a partial symbolic way. But bulls and goats would never be enough. There needed to be a permanent end to sacrifice. 
Bulls and goats, they were signposts. They were signposts to something that was coming, but they were never sufficient. Again, John Stott says this so beautifully in his book, The Cross of Christ. He writes that although the sin offering and the scapegoat, both in different ways, had a sin-bearing role, at least the more spiritually-minded Israelites must have realized that an animal can never be a satisfactory substitute for a human being. So in the famous servant songs in the second part of Isaiah, the prophet begins to delineate one whose mission would be to embrace the nations and who, in order to fulfill his mission, would need to suffer, bear sin, and die. You see, Jesus is the new and better sacrifice. He is the suffering servant. Notice in Leviticus chapter 16 and verse 22, it says the scapegoat bears the iniquities of the people. And the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 is said to bear the transgressions of the people. Jesus is the new and better sin offering who is sacrificed and who carries away the people's sin. And I just want you to listen to how the author of Hebrews in the New Testament, this letter in the New Testament, makes these connections. It says this, it says, The high priest goes into the Holy of Holies once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. But then in verse 11, this is chapter 9 of Hebrews, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of good things that have come, then the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, not that of creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. See, Jesus is the new and better Moses and Aaron. He's the one who intercedes for the people, and he's also the sacrifice. Jesus is now the priest who offers the sacrifice, and he is himself the sacrifice. He offers his own blood for the sins of the people. Jesus is the new and better substitute. Jesus is the new and final atonement. Again, later in Hebrews chapter 9, it says, He appeared once for all at the end of the age to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed once for people to die, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly are waiting for him. You see, what the holiness of God required, the love of God provided in the cross what the holiness of God required in his justice and in his fairness and his desire to see all things set right, to not have evil in the world, what the holiness of God required, the love of God provided in the cross. So what is our response to this new and better sacrifice? Well, this morning as we come to the Lord's table and celebrate communion, I want to suggest three things. First, as you come to the Lord's table, remember the sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus tells his disciples to eat this meal in remembrance of him. As you take the bread and the cup, remember Christ, the new and better sacrifice, your substitute who has borne all of this for you. Second, rest in his grace. When Israel on this day, when you look at Leviticus 16, Where was the nation of Israel on the day of atonement on Yom Kippur when Aaron went into the temple, into the the Holy of Holies? They were at home resting. There was a strict command that this is a day of Sabbath rest. 
So on the very day of their salvation, they did nothing. They rested. And someone else went in on their behalf, offered on their behalf. So rest in God's grace. You see, to work for your salvation when God is already working for you is death. I love the way that the, that the hymn writer puts it. He says, cast down your deadly doing down at Jesus' feet, stand in him alone, in him alone, glorious good complete. Cast down your deadly doing, down at Jesus' feet, stand in him, in him alone, gloriously complete. Quiet with the restlessness of guilt. Everything has been washed clean. Where, where were we when Jesus was sacrificing himself on the cross I mean, Romans tells us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, while we were rejecting him, he has saved us. And so now you don't need to do anything. Rest in his sacrifice. And finally, come before God humbly. Come into his presence. It is because God has made a way that humanity can dwell with and worship him. We can come boldly before the throne of God. I love the song we sang earlier, before the throne of God above. We can come boldly before that throne because of what Christ has done for us.